Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. And it's been um, it's been two weeks. I feel like I don't have that much. Yeah, uh, now that you say two weeks, I realize, like, I feel like I should have more here, but then I yeah, realize I that I've been super busy. and Yeah, we've both been very, very busy. Um my my uh Tyler, my social life's just taken off. Oh yeah, it's a big part of it. Um, Everywhere I look, uh, there you are. Yeah, well, I, well I, uh, my wife and I got to uh, hang out with uh, BP contributor Aaron Pinkston and his and his lovely wife. Yeah, um, you've got too much going on with your move. Uh, I know you weren't able to to felt, make it, but I felt really bad about that. Like just because I don't know when I'm next going to be in Chicago, so I right. Uh, um, but yeah, that was, that was a good time. Uh, we've been doing all kinds of stuff, but uh, let's, let's focus on the movies I've been watching. Indeed. Uh, people who have been following these movie journals will notice a pattern over the last two. When I say I watched, um, uh, George Stevens Nazi concentration camps. Ah, uh, yes. His documentary. Uh, this is part of the, the documentaries that are made available on Netflix, uh, alongside their, you know, uh, a tie as a tie in, a tie into their, documentary miniseries i guess five came back sure yeah, yeah. Um, it's a three-part series i guess that that is a miniseries yeah. but it also feels like <laughs> i feel like five parts or more please <laughs> yeah i don't know because i know like um you know hbo has done like two-part miniseries yeah. you know um anyway uh this one nazi concentration camps oh my god i mean it is all it is it's just a catalog of what the the um soldiers found when they um liberated or were too late to liberate mm-hmm. concentration camps so it's just an hour of um just dehumanizingly depressing and disgusting dead bodies or people who have been horribly malnourished or horribly yeah. beaten or it's uh it's not a fun watch uh a- at all i'm sure and it's i mean it's the kind of thing that like you know if this were uh, a horror movie, it would be shocking, but it right. would be fake. This is shocking because it's real. Like these are real, um, you know, there's a, there's one part where there are so many dead bodies that they're just giving them a mass burial and they're literally using like a bulldozer to yeah. push bodies into a ditch. And it's like, they're all real. These were real people. Uh, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. And it just doesn't let up uh, for an hour. Um, I can't really recommend it to, to anyone. It's it's what makes World War II so much different than other wars. Like as brutal as World War One was, and obviously Vietnam, and just speaking of like fairly recent American wars, um, you know, obviously those are ter- those are terrible. But there's something. This sounds weird. Something special about World War II because there's the war and there's the Holocaust. They're happening at the same time. They're a mm-hmm. function of the same thing, but they are so they're different. Uh, and I feel like. There's just, again, this sounds weird. I, I don't mean to speak purely in story terms, but there's there was so much more at stake mm. uh, in World War II. Um, yeah, here's one thing that stood out to me, though. I don't know if they addressed this in Five Came Back, but during the entire all the voiceover mm-hmm. um, that's telling you what they found, who these people were, what the town, the German townspeople thought. Right. Never once do they say. Jews. They never mentioned that they're Jews. Right. You and I talked about this off mic. Yeah. Um, they mentioned their, 
their uh, nationalities that they're from mm-hmm. all over Europe, you know, um, uh, and they mentioned that they're imprisoned for, I, I think the term is political and religious concerns, but it doesn't mention yeah. that they're specifically that they're, that they're Jews. And I found that so strange because that's, I mean, having been, having, you know, been born 40 years after the fact, right. Um, that there's no separation. You like, you know, it, it almost took me a while to realize they weren't saying it because mm. it's so self-evident. Like that's just something you you grow up knowing. That's what the Holocaust right. uh, was. Yeah, and there's just and yes, uh, there's the the element that in you know in in the U.S. there were restricted clubs and and stuff sure, like that yeah. and so you know it's not like we were uh free of that but i'm i'm fascinated at the notion that there's somebody out there who would watch the, these this horrible footage yeah and be like oh my gosh this is astonishing uh, how could this happen and then someone says well they're jews and i was like oh <laughs> right yeah well, right. but is that what they were afraid of maybe oh, i don't know uh, i don't know very upsetting yeah um and then uh, on a much, uh, definitely a different note, I was going to say a much lighter note, but at points this movie is not very light. <laughs> um, uh, I watched um, Bong Joon-ho's Okja, which okay. is a movie that I was very much looking forward to because I, yeah. uh, I love Bong Joon-ho. And you know, there's, this is the first of two movies that will be in the journal today where I'll say, um, this is a really good movie, but by this director's standards, it's right. not necessarily up to. So I think Okja is, it's terrifically fascinating. I've actually uh, kind of watched it twice because hmm. I watched it. Um, uh, yeah, I watched it before it was on Netflix. Netflix sent me a link, you know, <laughs> I, I don't want to brag. It, I just, um, I do like this character because yeah. you're really starting to bring it into your voice now. Like, yeah. I, I, I don't mean it, you know, uh, but then once it premiered, my wife, Natalie was like, that sounds great. I want to see it. Um, and so I ended up, uh, sort of half watching it with her, uh, over the weekend, but I was also like on the internet cause I'd already seen it and stuff. But anyway, um, it's, it's a very fun watch. At times, because he's just simply a great filmmaker, and it has yeah. a, a central um, action, like a uh, foot, then car, then foot chase yeah. um, uh, sequence that is just breathtaking. Um, but I think it's a little. Uh, it, it's it, the movie itself is is uneven, and I think that until the end, when things come into focus, it's anti-corporate satire sure um is um uh, and in the one sense it's over the top but it's also unfocused and i think that's the problem i don't mind it's, over the top necessarily you know yeah um but it seems to sort of and i think this is the problem because it's it's definitely you know an mm-hmm. animal rights movie i don't know if you know the story at all yeah yeah okay so there's this uh, people who don't know there's this animal that's genetically created and that was Anyway, it was created by a corporation. Um, its name is Okja. There's a bunch of them, but this one has lived and has grown up on a farm in the woods right. uh, in the mountains of uh, Korea with this young girl all her life. And it's time f- for the for Okja to go back to New York, back to the company that made her. And uh, this girl obviously doesn't want to lose her her pet, and she teams up with some uh, a group of uh, animal liber- liberation activists who are actually a delightful. Uh, it's Paul Dano and Stephen Yeun and uh, uh, Lily Collins and some other mm-hmm. uh, actors. They're 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 a really fun part of the movie. Lily Collins um, is a name I've been hearing a lot lately, but I don't think I've seen anything she is in. Um, what? Where? Remind me where I might have. 
I first knew her from Mirror Mirror, which was, <laughs> if you remember, okay. I think, was that the deep impact to Snow White and the Seven Dwarves Armageddon? Yes, I think so. I was going to go with the Volcano Dante's Peak comparison, but I don't know which one is which. Like, which one is the bigger movie, Volcano or Dante's Peak? I think Volcano is. So Dante's Peak is the also ran in that? I don't know. That one came first. Dante's Peak, I think, came out before Volcano, but Volcano is the bigger, more ambitious, more special effects heavy film. Because I never saw either one. You know, I mean, Dante's Peak is essentially just like a little chamber drama uh, when it comes (laughs) to... uh, uh, disaster movies but um um so lily collins so i first knew her from mirror mirror um i didn't see the mortal instrument city of bones although i went to the WonderCon panel for that i can't remember if you were there that year um but just last year she was in rules don't apply she was the young female lead in rules don't apply okay um she's terrific i'm a big fan of her okay um she was also apparently in the blind side according to imdb but i never saw that i saw that movie Uh, um but uh i think so okay it's an animal rights movie and i think it does a good job i think of of saying you know that uh factory farming is really is really brutal um and that the lives that the the animal lead but i think are are awful but i think more so than that it's an anti-gmo movie and that is a topic that i am less on board with um because i i don't even really know what it is (laughs) i mean it has it's genetically modified foods and i think like uh uh, uh, a lot of people I think have this knee jerk, like that sounds like too sciencey for food. And that right. sounds, and I think there's just a general sort of it's corporations doing it. I distrust yeah. corporations fucking with shit, but people kind of overlook that. Like maybe we can feed more people if the, uh, yeah. you know, if the food is made to survive yeah. harsher climates or, or grow think, bigger think- or like, like, so I think, uh, I lump anti-GMO people in with anti-vax people. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, and I'm sure there are some people who uh, would disagree with that, but um, I think it's... Um, I bet it's you and... You know, it's new age hippie <laughs> bullshit. Is what I'll bet is. you and I see the big tomato and everybody else sees tomaco. <laughs> I think that's what it is. Yeah, yeah, that's probably what it is. And so that's why I think, uh, I think for most of the movie... Um, when it comes to the corporate stuff, when it, when it's the like boy and his dog, except girl and her genetically modified super pig, that stuff's fantastic. When it's an action movie, it's fantastic. Um, but when it focuses up until the end, when it focuses on the corporate stuff, it just feels like it's trusting you, the viewer to already, you know, distrust corporations enough that you don't, that that it's 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 expecting that you're not going to realize it doesn't actually have any points to make mm-hmm. again until the end i think at the end when it comes to a point um that's uh for a movie that's so idealistic is actually a bit of realpolitik if you will um uh, uh, of, of saying like small victories are possible if we realize that business only understands the language of business and money, like making humanistic appeals or, or emotional appeals to a corporation is not the way to make progress. It's Mm -hmm. to show them that, um, you you know, they could make some money from, you know, big miracle, uh, in my interpretation (laughs) of big miracle, no one else. I only know about because you've talked about it. Um, but yeah. that was a big takeaway I had. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, and so I think it's in, in the way. In a way, it's very cynical because um, it it does emphasize that this is a small victory, and a lot of animals are still going to go on being right. being tortured. Um, 
But uh, anyway, I, I've gone on too long about it. And it's worth watching because Bong Joon-ho is just a, you know, a terrific. He's like a Steven Spielberg. He's just a natural filmmaker yeah. that you can't help but find his movies uh, enjoyable. You've got a bunch of, of great performances. Uh, I really like Paul Dano uh, um, as the sort of like, um, I think I'd, I I described him as a um, sensitive badass, I think, in my review. But it, um, <laughs> Um, the other thing, the only thing I want to say though, that I brought up to a couple people, there's an, a part of that action scene that it goes into slow motion and the song, Annie's song by John Denver plays, which mm-hmm. is a beautiful song. And it's also a song that was just in free fire. Did you see free fire? Which one is that? It's that's, Oh, the, that's the, yeah, yeah. Okay. No, I didn't okay. see it. So, um, it's weird that two movies are using, two movies within less than a year are using Annie's song by John Denver for like contrast to an action scene. Cause it's a very sweet, it's not an action type song. Yeah. Uh, it's a very slow and sweet song. Um, and I, I'm not complaining cause again, I think it's a great song, but uh, it's weird that that song of all things has bubbled up into, into two movies. Um, There's a rights holder somewhere who is really selling this thing. He's <laughs> like, yeah. you know, these Avengers movies are pretty good, but you know what they could really use is this John Denver song and only this one. Yeah. Um, um, all right. So that's my two That's my first two. What, what, what did you watch? Well, if you don't mind, I wanted to, uh, mention something about Okja, a, a film that I've not seen. Two things. Number one is that, uh, that's one I'm going to have you, like you watch it with Natalie. This is one that I'm going to have to see alone. Uh, because oh. Jen is so sensitive to like any kind of cruelty to animals, like even CGI animals. I'd say especially. Okay. Um, that's not true. Uh, but like, like King Kong, like she can't watch King okay. Kong for, for example. And so, uh, I watched a, a trailer with her and I said, Hey, do you want to see that? She goes, no, not at all. Like she started getting angry and welling up from the trailer. Uh-huh. And so I'm like, okay, well that's one I'm just going to have to see on my own. So that's one side of it on the other. So I'm going to let you a little bit behind the scenes of my life and my ambitions. Uh-huh. Um, I'm kind of trying to insinuate myself into, uh, don't tell anybody. Okay. I'm trying to insinuate myself into being the film critic for the daily wire. Now, uh, I don't I, know what that is. It's, it is, uh, it's a conservative website. Okay. Probably their, their flagship podcast is, is Shapiro, but, uh, oh, that guy I hate. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, I'm not talking with him. I'm, I'm working with other people. Uh, and I can't say what they have said, but, uh, they really like the idea of me, uh, okay. reviewing movies there. Um, because it would appear that I'm starting to pivot where Christians are actually pretty comfortable with movies now. Conservatives, however, okay. are still as uh, shitty as they've ever been. <laughs> and so and I, I apparently need some kind of cause where I just go around telling everyone they're wrong. Um, and I saw certain, not all, not everywhere, obviously, but like I saw certain conservative, conservative responses to Oakjaw. And of course, I, having seen Snowpiercer, I knew what it was going to be, like that there was going to be an anti-corporate, anti, you know, any number of things. Mm-hmm. Um and they just said like, oh, this movie's, uh, it's like, this is one of the worst movies of the year. Cause it's got this and this and this. And I just want to be like, fuck off, man. Like, come on. Like not every movie has to. And I recognize that the, in the minds of, of fellow conservatives, like, you know, 
very few movies actually have conservative values. We've done an episode about it and maybe I agree, maybe I don't, but at the same time, like how are you unable to divorce yourself from a a film's quality and what it's trying to do? You know, and in that way, I guess it's not that far from my complaint about Christian film, except they, except audiences embrace that because of what it's trying to do. And it just like, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. I I feel like I can't read anything anymore ever because it's just going to anger me one way or another. Um, again, you said we've talked about it before. We don't need to get into it again because I do feel like a lot of popular movies have conservative values when it comes to certain social mores and when it comes to law and order, when it comes to guns, like there's a lot of things that I don't necessarily agree with. I I still can enjoy the movie. I don't let's, I don't, I, 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 unless something is, you know, specifically, you know, racist, sexist, homophobic, that sort of thing that obviously that's going to be a turnoff, but just because I disagree with the politics of a movie, Right. It's not going to keep me from enjoying it. Well, because you have a res- you have a respect for artistry, and right. you can allow yourself to be impacted on that level. Um, and so, what I'm saying is, you're better than these people I'm talking right. about, and so am I. Uh, uh-huh. don't, and listeners, you probably are too. Uh, I'm kind of in a generally angry mood these days, and so. Uh, so you're probably going to hear me saying in a number of ways, ah, fuck off, like just getting really being very dismissive of people who are themselves quite dismissive of things that I absolutely love. Stay tuned for uh, our upcoming episode. Um, okay. okay. Yes. So enough of that. So I saw um, Sally Sussman's Midnight Return, which is a documentary mm-hmm. about a number of things, including the impact of Midnight Express. Have you seen Midnight oh, Express? I have seen Midnight okay. Express. As, as and I actually I, just bought the uh, soundtrack on vinyl at a yard sale, literally just this weekend. <laughs> that's very specific. Um, it was in great condition. They uh, they do interview the the composer. Um, they they interview basically everybody they can, including Oliver Stone, including uh, uh, the director, and. Unfortunately, the lead actor from uh, Midnight Express uh, passed away in the early 90s, but they also talked to the actual Billy Hayes. And so the film is about the impact. It it leads up to everything that it's here's the real story. Here's uh, of, of Billy Hayes being arrested, sent to this Turkish prison and then his escape. And then the impact that had on Hollywood and about in the U.S. in general, the movie that was made. And then it pivots from there into the larger story about how much of the movie was true and mm-hmm. how much was, and the, the stuff that they cut out um, in order to make the Turkish officials look as bad as they could. And it also talks about some of the pressure being put on Turkey by the international community and specifically Richard Nixon um, to clamp down on uh, drug mules and stuff like that. So Turkey is responding to international pressure, mm-hmm. uh, by sentencing this guy to like, uh, uh, admittedly an, an insane, uh, 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 number of years. I believe it's essentially 30 years. Um, and so it, it's just really fascinating. And then, and then over the years, uh, Billy Hayes, the real guy has come to sort of has come to regret the role that he played in the pretty much worldwide denigration of Turkey. Mm. Um, and it is a very thorough film. And I think that it, 
uh, it, it paints the real Billy Hayes as maybe kind of self aggrandizing. Um, but also trying to be humble and trying to, um, trying to make things right. Uh, I think it explores the sort the power of film and the power of art in general. And that, you know, nine t- I'd say 99 times out of a hundred. If we know if a movie, if a true story has been made into a movie, people will know the movie. They'll know the story through the movie more so than the actual story. Um, and that there's a tremendous responsibility I'd say on the part of the filmmaker, not to necessarily be true to, to be faithful to the true story. I don't think you necessarily need to do that, but I think being flippant about the true mm-hmm. story, um, especially if it could impact the, the perception of people, um, of an entire people I'd say is, is where the responsibility can come into play. So, uh, it really is a, a, a really good documentary in many ways. It kind of falls into, you know, just here's a bunch of interviews. So just a bunch of talking heads, but it, it, it's edited wonderfully. So it just keeps moving. We yes. see footage from the film. We see other cultural impacts, including, uh, uh, Peter Graves and airplane saying like, Billy, you ever been to a Turkish prison, you know, and stuff like that. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, it is definitely, it hasn't, uh, it hasn't been released. It's, it has done the festival circuit for like two years, I think. And it's finally getting a release, uh, a limited release in the U S in the next couple of weeks, I believe. And, uh, and if you happen to be in one of the cities that it's playing in, uh, check it out. Cause it's, it is a, a very, very good movie. And I think one that any movie fan, uh, would enjoy. Okay. Um, I saw a movie that we talked about recently, um, that I was, uh, intrigued and skeptical of at the same time. I saw Dave McCary's Brigsby bear. Oh, okay. Um, which is a movie that in, in so many ways, if you just look at the, the trailer or, or, um, learn a little bit about it, is something that I was very skeptical about. Yeah. It seems very cutesy, you know, it's got a sort of, um, you know, man child uh, uh storyline and it's got that 80s nostalgia that every um, <laughs> every third movie has yeah. these days even though it takes place now um so i was skeptical but uh what i found is a really sweet natured movie that is actually very thoughtful and earnest in its argument for the validity of pop culture obsession as a way of dealing with the world or, Hmm. um, or, or interpreting or even sparking creativity. I think that's a, that's a big thing that I found that that I liked about, um, the movie that I don't know that other, um, reviews I've read have really latched onto is the idea that there's so much of the, so much of the idea of what nerds are is that, uh, that all they do is sit and, um, watch, you know, they're just, it's completely passive obsession. Um, and, and they do it because they can't fit in with quote unquote normal society. Sure. Yeah. And, and, and this is, and in this movie, it shows how, um, the main character's obsession with Brigsby bear, uh, which is a fictional television series, I guess. I don't want to give too much of the movie away. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that, that it, how he finds his own creativity, um, and that he finds his place in the world by becoming a creative person, which he's only able to do because of his uh, obsession with Brigsby Bear. Uh, I found that really sweet. It's full of great performances. I'll tell the basic story, or I'll tell no more than what the... I don't even know what I can say. Yeah. Because it's a movie that, uh, and some, uh, a number of reviews have just 
plain giving it away. Um, but I don't know that I want to do that. It's a movie that has a big reveal. Yeah. But it's early on. Yeah, and like I, I knew that bit about yeah, it. I, and yeah. then when I saw any kind of publicity for it, I was like, oh, they're not pushing that. Like that is definitely a reveal. But in certain plot synopses, it's right there. Yeah, because it's hard to talk about the movie without talking about the reveal because yeah. it does happen so early on. Um, but basically, Kyle Mooney plays a person who is Kyle Mooney aged, but still, li- you know, he lives uh, in this sort of um, it feels like the 1980s. But you realize like, OK, there's the Internet and there's OK. So you, you realize it's today, but it, mm-hmm. uh, everything is a throwback. He lives with his parents, played by Mark Hamill and Jane Adams. Um, and he, um, obsessively watches, um, and then vlogs about this television show called Brigsby Bear, which is a sort of kids show that is a very, uh, layered mythology sort of sci-fi type of show, but it also has, um, a lot of life lessons, uh, in it. Um, and then I guess his relationship to the world changes he finds out some things that maybe not everyone knows Briggsy bear as much as he does um uh anyway all all that all that sort of stuff um and i don't want to go too far into it from there but uh i've already said enough it's very sweet and i will say this um a great supporting performance that it's exactly the type of performance and exactly the type of movie that won't get a lot of attention come Oscar time. But Greg Kinnear is fucking great in this movie. He's great in every movie. <laughs> um, yeah, I keep, I, I keep toying with the idea of doing a, uh, a profile on him, but he's going to, because I feel like he needs more attention as an amazing yeah. actor, but he's going to keep doing great performances for <laughs> yeah. the next several years. So I feel like we should wait, but, um, now, let me ask you this, because looking at the Comic-Con schedule, I saw that there will be a low-level Brigsby Bear presence. Yeah. Is that because of the pop culture and the I'm nostalgia sure. and stuff? Yeah, definitely a movie, I think, that it's made for, and it's made about Comic-Con type of people. It's okay. made about people who are obsessed with pop culture. Okay. Um, in, in Obviously, in this guy's case, I'm already forgetting the character's name, but in his case, it's specifically with this one show, Brigsby Bear. Um, because he's not really aware of other TV shows. Yeah. Um, uh, I guess that's a bit of a hint, but not really. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, uh, even though it might not seem like a Comic-Con movie because it's not a big like spectacle, right. it's very much a Comic-Con movie in that it's for those people. Like, who, who are us? Yeah. Those people are us. Well, so. I'm excited to see it now because like like yourself, like any, probably anybody that hears about it, it's like, oh boy, yeah, here yeah. we go. But uh, I was cautious because I knew the the reveal. I was like, oh, that makes it more interesting. Okay. Potentially. Um, and then uh, the last one of these, I watched John Huston's Let There Be Light. Mm-hmm. The, so the last one of the uh, um, uh, ones that I... There's not the last one that exists, but the last one that I plan to watch of these um, uh, World War II documentaries. And this is... Uh, Let, there, Let There Be Light is about... Um, it's pretty shocking because it's about post-traumatic stress disorder, which is something that we don't, you don't see that much documentation of from the 1940s, right. uh, which this movie was actually sort of like banned for a while or, yeah. uh, suppressed, I guess, by the government. Um, uh, because it's not the kind of thing, you know, especially with world war two, which is quote unquote, a good war, yeah. you know, to see people who just can't fit 
in, you know, yeah. and, and are, and are shaking and, are, and, you know, breaking down crying when they're asked simple questions because they're, uh, in the constant state of, uh, post-traumatic stress. Yeah. Um, it's, now, it's shocking. Was it called shell shock at the time? Is that what, See, I, um, you know, and now I can't, I think in this movie, I think, cause shell shock is a term that I hear associated with world war one. Okay. More. Yeah. Um, in, in this, it, within the movie, they never say shell shock. They say battle fatigue. Okay. Um, okay. is the thing they say, but it's clearly more than that. You know, right. these, uh, and, and it doesn't manifest uniformly across the men, you know? Okay. So it, the movie takes place entirely in a one veterans hospital, um, that's specifically psychiatric focused. And it just features a bunch of interviews, um, interviews with, but also just dropping in on psychiatric sessions with, uh, these men, which I, I question the ethics of that in terms of, yeah. um, what therapy is supposed to be of there being a camera there. Um, and it's, uh, uh I guess I, I feel like I'm not, I, like with looking back at these five that I watched, which was this one, Nazi prison, uh, concentration camps, how to operate behind enemy lines, um, Memphis bell. And then I rewatched, uh, prelude to war. Uh, I feel like I'm not as big, as high on them as I hoped to be. Mm. I knew I liked prelude to war cause I'd seen it and I really liked Memphis bell. The rest of them, um, uh, are varying degrees of, um, with the, obviously the concentration camp one is just like, uh, that's uh, a fascinating document. And I think it's a vital document. Uh, I don't know that it's a good movie, but I don't know that's what it's supposed to be. Uh, yeah. It's, um, it's like, is this a pruder film, a good movie? <laughs> no, yeah. but it's, yeah. um, but what I find about a lot of them, uh, concentration camps, how do I break behind, behind enemy lines? And this one is that even in an hour, they feel like they go on too long because they feel repetitive. Mm. Um, whereas I, and I understand with the concentration camp one, that's part of the point. Is right. Just how many camps there were. I feel like even today we don't really realize because you, when you hear about concentration camps, you hear about like, uh, what Auschwitz, um, Dachau, Dachau yeah. uh, Bergen Belsen. Like there, yeah. there's a handful you hear about, you know, like you forget that they they were all over the place. Yeah. There were so many of them. Um, but with this, it, uh, it did kind of feel like it, it goes on. And also here's a weird complaint. It's not even a complaint, but I kept forgetting that they weren't actors because the movie is lit so well. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. It's so like, and I, and I wonder to what extent did John Houston direct like, okay, this thing where the doctor's going to address all the men at once, we're going to set up the lights and we're going to have yeah. the guy stand here and maybe he directed him to like why don't you put your foot up on a chair so you know it feels yeah. directed even though i know that it, i know that they're real well and it makes you wonder it's just like is our you know our our big blinding lights good for these people <laughs> right yeah it feels like it shouldn't uh, be yeah yeah it, it looks so professional that i occasionally would forget um that that, that it was real um anyway uh, what's next for you? Next for me, I can actually talk about it now. Uh, I started to talk about it last week, but, uh, oh, okay. which is a uh, war, uh, Matt Reeves war for the planet of the apes. So See, I'm so legalistic about this. Uh, the way we do the movie journals, mm-hmm. if I, cause I'm only talking about the stuff that I've seen since the last one. So okay. if one came up that I was under embargo for too bad, that doesn't get mentioned in the movie journal. That's my personal rule. So wait, okay. Hang on. If so I saw saying movie, I, okay. Like I, I didn't talk about the big sick on the movie journal. Right. Right. Because even though the movies played multiple festivals to great acclaim, mm-hmm. they told me I was under embargo. All right. Conversation of the day, but it yeah, yeah. It, 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 but uh, I didn't talk about the big sick on the movie journal because 
I was technically under embargo right. when we talked about it. I, I'm saying I didn't hold it for the next movie journal. Oh, and so what happened was... That's just my rule. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, I'm I'm not sh- saying you I have probably to, I, should care more. No, you have all kinds of different... Like, <laughs> that's the 18th way you break my rules for the movie journal. Fair enough. I'm the one who's a hardliner and only for myself. What are, what are the other 17? Uh, mostly that you go all out of all out of order, oh, whereas I strictly talk about stuff yeah. in the order that I watched it, um, which uh, is which is usually what I do. But I also like there to be a nice flow to the conversation, which admittedly you reset every few minutes, but it's fine. Yeah, um, that's, that's what, what so, I'm doing. Uh, yeah, uh, this isn't called the BP movie flow. That's that is true. <laughs> yes, um, okay. it could be though. We could you know some rebrand. Some nice, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, oh, so, hey, oh. real quick. Okay. If you're coming to Comic-Con, because we talked about Comic-Con. <laughs> sure. Uh, we are doing our meetup again Thursday. That's July 20th this year. Uh, Thursday, July 20th, 8 p.m. at the bootlegger. All so, right. So uh, I don't have the address in front of me, but we all have fucking smartphones. Yeah. Look up the bootlegger. Yeah. Um, so come to our meetup brought to you by Filmstruck. Indeed. Have, to, I mean, have a free drink on Filmstruck, by the way. That's the part I should say. Indeed. Drinks will be on the house, but not the house. They'll be on Filmstruck. And it's two weeks from today. Like, it is coming up fast. It yeah. feels like it, it... That's a little peek behind the curtain. Like, I'm less excited about Comic-Con every year. I still yeah. love it in a way, and it still is very important to me, definitely. Um, but it used to be like, once it started to get warm yeah. outside, I was like, oh boy, it's Comic-Con season. Now well, it's and like, when it was over, you oh, got like depressed. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and now, yeah, we're two weeks away and I'm like, I'll think about it next week. See, I'm thinking anything that gets me mentally out of this move, I'm thrilled with. So, um, but yeah, so you teased, uh, uh, your movie. So I am seeing, I'm seeing ads for war for the planet of the apes and people are saying, and it's just like uh, one of the best movies of the year. It's very, very good. Okay. But I had the same complaint with it that I had with the last one, which is it just doesn't it's weird that, you know, for a summer blockbuster, I'm complaining that it's not big enough, Um, except that this is war for the planet of the apes. It feels like we need to be building to something definitive, you know, because there does come a moment when, all right, the apes have won. We have lost. And this just feels like another fairly small battle. It's like an army of probably 150 guys versus apes, uh, maybe like 75 to a hundred apes. Yeah. All right. That's a battle. Mm-hmm. Um, battle for the planet of the apes is a title that has already been taken uh, in the 1970s. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, so they can't call it that, but it does just feel like, but you're saying you want it to be what? Like you want it to be Helm's deep, um, with apes. Yeah. Frankly, what I would like it to be is maybe seeing it, seeing different battles in right. various places. Yeah. Because right now it just feels like the can has been kicked down the road with each movie. They are, uh, they are establishing new things. Like for example, the, the virus that has killed off a lot of humans, it's starting to mutate now and humans are losing the ability to speak. Okay. We've like that's being set up um, because we know from the original Planet of the Apes that humans can't speak, and so here's an explanation as to why. So we, they're checking off certain things, but it just feels like I don't know. I, it feels like a studio calculation that it's like yes, yes, we want something big, but we also want room. Yeah, that's to what do I was another ask. Is they they can't move too far down the field because right. they don't know how many more the public will 
keep paying for. Right. And so like this, this film, it, it definitely ends on a note of finality, but it also doesn't feel like a big enough note. It feels like very specific to this character and then a final note for him. It's like, Oh, okay, that's fine. But what about everyone else? Uh, this is a nationwide issue. Uh, so what's the, what about other what about other places? So I'm not sure what they're going to do. I will say that the special effects are astounding. Um, some of the best okay. I've ever seen. And uh, it's a movie that I would still recommend. It's still like a three and a half out of five stars for me. But it just feels like... And it's weird. I actually looked up my Dawn of the Planet of the Apes review. And it's the same complaint. Which one is... Is that the first one or that's the last one? Rise is the first okay. one. Dawn the first is the one second. Of, this. of these, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Dawn is the okay. second and then this is the third RDW. And so, uh, right. <laughs> yes, indeed. Hmm. Um, anyway, but, uh, our friend, um, uh, Angie Han over at Mashable has mm-hmm. just to save herself. Twitter space has just been calling this movie war apes. <laughs> she's like, everyone's going to know what I'm talking about. And I'm just going to call it war apes. And she's oh. stuck to that. That's the only thing she's called it. <laughs> I wish it, that would be better. I would like that more, but, uh, but yeah, and it's, it is, it's a movie I, I highly recommend. I will say this though. Um, there is a scene with Woody Harrelson that is mostly expository. And I mean, it feels like it's 20 minutes long. I know it huh. isn't, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was like eight. Wow. And I understand you need to, exp- you need expository dialogue here and there, but boy, oh boy, like and usually I, Woody Harrelson would be so, a good person to, yeah, to he, give does, that to. he does fine. Okay. It's just, I just keep, I, I just feel like shit. Are we still here? <laughs> I thought like, and, and I saw it with friend of the show, Jason Eakin. And, uh, and afterwards I was like, how about that scene? Huh? He goes, I know what's going on with that. And so it's uh, but yeah, I feel, I feel conflicted. It's a movie I definitely would recommend because I wish more blockbusters were as thoughtful as this. It just mm. feels like it's missing something. Well, I've said before, I saw a trailer for this, um, which I hadn't seen before, but, um, I have, I, you know, it was before a movie I was playing. Mm. I try not, I try not to watch trailers in general, right. but I'm not going to be, the I'm generally generally not the doofus who's like la 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 la, la like when well, I'm in a movie theater yes no I'm, thank you I'm just watching the uh, I'll take the bullet so I, I watched the movie I watched the trailer um, and as someone who hasn't seen any of these it looks so silly because it's I because I'm not invested in right. these CG apes so it just looks so silly that they're talking CG apes and let me ask you this what's the deal with Woody Harrelson's gorilla buddy is he like a loyalist. Uh, it is explained. He is essentially, there was a, uh, like an inter ape war or, or or struggle in the last film and the side that lost, uh, there are a handful of people that were loyal to that side or more specifically, they were fearful of what would happen if they stuck around. So they actually wind up going over to the humans and, uh, essentially they are, slaves pretty much oh okay okay so but he's a gorilla he could rip woody harrelson in half yes but there are 149 other people with guns i see so all right moving on speaking of cg animal movies okay i saw a barry sonnenfeld joint okay called nine lives with Kevin Spacey is a I don't think I realized that Barry Sonnenfeld directed Well, that. that's part of why the movie is so fascinating, because it's made by someone who knows how to make a movie. Yeah. And so it's not good, but it's also not bad in the way that I was expecting. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because it's well made, and it moves, and you've got Christopher Walken 
knocking it out of the park. I mean, he's also, I mean, he's swinging for the fences and knocking it out of the park because he's, he's going very, very big. Um, but it's, so it's a movie that is, that is bad, definitely bad. Okay. But at no point was I bored and at almost no point was I like cringing at it. Yeah. I was more puzzled by a lot of it. It has a lot of parts that don't seem to fit together. Yeah. I'll give you an example, a very early example of how the tone of this movie is fascinating, but doesn't work. You start with an opening montage of cat videos and then that segues into some sort of pre-film stuff, but it's like, uh, almost like when Harry met Sally has the like, sure. How do we, how we met thing. So it's like, here's weird things. People like feel or say about their cats, the way they like humanize their cats. But then one person is like, um, I've dressed him in this hoodie that looks like my son's ever since my son died in the accident. Sometimes I feel like he's like, it's it's a weird jarring shift to something really, truly sad. And I don't know if the movie doesn't realize that it's sad uh, or, or what it's, so that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about that happens uh, in in the movie. And then I, I saw it with a friend of mine who was a huge cat fan um he has cats and he likes cat videos more than the mm-hmm. average person everybody likes cat videos to some extent but he's a huge cat guy and he pointed out like like this is a cat movie where the cat is not cute no <laughs> like because kevin spacey plays an asshole who goes into a cat and the cat acts like an asshole most of the time and it's a big like furball of a cat and it doesn't really do cute shit mm-hmm. it, uh, it mostly acts obnoxious and it like pees places. Um, that's a running thing. It pees on stuff. It doesn't like, I'm um, sure. uh, by the way, by which I mean stuff, Kevin Spacey's character doesn't like, um, uh, and, and, and at no point is it like, Oh, cute cat, like cat, this isn't, this is a movie about a cat that is not made for cat people. Yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of made for people who don't like cats. Cause the whole premise I think of the movie is that Kevin Spacey's an asshole. Cats are assholes. No one's going to notice if Kevin Spacey is in this cat's right. Kevin Spacey's soul uh, and learn until he learns to be a nice person, AKA not a cat. Cause cats aren't nice. That's so it seems like a weirdly anti cat movie. Hmm. Um, and so that's another thing that I don't understand why this movie got, got made. Um, another thing I want to point out, I don't understand why it's in the movie. I don't have any problem with it politically, but it kept, it happens more than once. It's a running gag of sort of sorts that I found so oddly placed. So in Kevin Spacey's character's office, there's a picture cause he's like a Richard Branson type. He's like sure, a big, like, sure. um, uh, rich owes a lot of different businesses. He's a celebrity in a sense he skydives at the very like we meet him skydiving that's uh mm. his anyway um so there's a picture of him shaking george w bush's hand and then there's a running gag where during the cat's sort of shenanigans he's always like spilling stuff or knocking stuff over george w bush's face keeps getting like defiled on this on this photo so i feel like the point of the movie is like or the point of that, which I don't necessarily agree with, is look what an asshole this guy is. He knows George W. Bush, right? <laughs> Making right. him an asshole. Yeah. Again, I don't necessarily agree. Still think it's disagree. I just still think it's weird that it's in the movie. And then the process of him becoming a better person involves like ink getting sprayed in George W. Bush's face with the picture being shattered specifically on his face. It's, it's so weird. And also a decade after i know like, <laughs> that's that's the big one for me is that like 
Does this movie sit on the shelf for a while? Or? That's why I think it's specifically a political thing. Like it's specifically going back to the last Republican president. Yeah. Um, cause this movie came out during the uh, Obama administration, uh, or at least was finished then. Okay. Right. Right. It, when it exactly came out. Um, anyway, uh, it's a weird movie. I can't recommend it. Um, but, um, uh, it's, it at least was bad in ways I didn't expect it to be bad. Well, that's something. Uh, yeah. Okay. And then to do a total, uh, a total 180. Um, the other movie I saw, which is currently my favorite movie of 2017. Um, I saw David Lowry's a ghost story, All right. which is, uh, kind of not to the same extent of Briggsby bear. Um, but to some extent it is a movie that I want to only tell you part of the story sure. because I, and also I want to tell you Tyler and everyone listening that if you do care about this, the spoiler type stuff, don't watch the trailer for this movie. Uh-huh. I was, I watched the trailer after I saw the movie and I was so glad I hadn't seen it. I was surprised at how much they put in the trailer. Um, when I going in, didn't know, uh, I didn't know that much about the second half of the movie and it's a bunch of stuff. Uh, you know, I feel like the, I feel like the studios have been doing that more like with these movies with people, you know, in them, but they're smaller, they're slower. And so it's almost like they're saying, here's everything. Do you want to see all of this? Like the beguiled is the same thing. Oh, okay. I didn't see that trailer, but the Briggs Bear trailer, I would say absolutely go watch. Okay. Cause I, I was, I was actually surprised at how like all the stuff in the trailer is from the beginning of the movie. And it mm-hmm. doesn't really give that much away okay. at all. And maybe, you know, once it gets closer to release, they'll probably come out with a new trailer. That sure. Sure. Tells you the whole story. But, um, for now you can watch the Briggs Bear trailer. Um, anyway, so, Here's what a ghost story is about. Casey Affleck and Rooney Mara play a um, married couple. I assume they're married. I read a review that pointed out that it never says they're married. So maybe they're not married. They're a couple. They live together in a house um, um, in this sort of, it's sort of suburban, sort of, it's it's ex-urban, this house, I would say, Um, which is between suburban and rural, for those who don't know. Um, And, uh, they're talking about maybe moving out of the house, but before they get a chance, Casey Affleck's character dies in a car accident. Mm -hmm. Um, and after Rooney Mara identifies the body, she goes home and then the camera stays on the body, um, which is under a sheet, uh, which then sits up and walks home, staying under the sheet, developing eye holes like a Halloween, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the cheap Halloween costume ghost. Um, and he is Casey Affleck is just a ghost from that point hanging around the house. He can't, talk he's pretty much just watching Rooney Mara grieve for him oh <laughs> um, that uh, sounds great but pretty rough as well it it is sad it's definitely a sad movie especially that the, the, the first you know the handful of scenes after he comes back to the house are very sad including the famous or infamous at this point um pie scene do you know about i don't um well there's uh this point I, a part i am gonna spoil because it's not really a spoiler but there is a shot of Rooney Mara eating an entire pie mm-hmm. uh because someone as you and i know when someone dies in your family people bring you food yep and so she comes home and her um friend uh who i think is a real estate agent i can't remember 
has uh, brought her pie and left her a note and she just sort of gets a fork and starts eating the pie and then doesn't stop eating the pie and then at one point sits down on the kitchen floor and just eats the pie with her hands uh and it's all uh it's it's not actually it's actually in two takes not uh, one take because mm-hmm. when she sits down there's a cut it's not important but um so that stuff is pretty rough but then it it is actually also a very very beautiful um movie um that brought me a lot of joy. Um, some people will find it very boring cause it's a movie that has almost no dialogue in it. Um, uh, because really this is from the ghost's point of view and from the point that he's dead, he doesn't speak. Yeah. Um, and, and so the only dialogue is what he overhears from other people in the house. Um, uh, and, and even that is not that, that much. Um, except for, I'll tell you this, Tyler, we're only halfway through the year. Mm-hmm. We might have a lock for the BP award for best performance under 15 minutes. All right. Because who, who we got? Will Oldham shows up at about the halfway point to deliver a drunken monologue that is kind of the mission statement of the movie. <laughs> and it's, it's an amazing scene. Uh, Did you ever see his video for, uh, so he's done two versions of I see a darkness. Um, no, I haven't seen either. One of them is, is, uh, a more upbeat one that, uh, I don't think he directed it, but it's, it's, it's upbeat and it's him like w- strolling down the street and talking with his friends and stuff. And then about halfway through his eyes start doing weird things oh, in, awesome. completely independent of his body. And at first you don't, you're just like, what the, and then everything goes along fine. It's like, Hey, wait, wait, hang on. No, no, no. I saw that one. <laughs> what the fuck is going on here? Oh, and it's, awesome. it's ridiculous, eh? but it's delightful. Did you ever see the video that he and Zach Galifianakis made for a Kanye West song? Yes. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. Yes. I did. Uh, that's over 10 years old at this point. I think so. <laughs> it is. It doesn't involve like a tractor and stuff. Yeah. Cause it's actually, cause Zach Galifianakis actually like owns a farm in North Carolina. Right, or whatever, right. and I, and they just like fucked around on his yeah. farm and turned it into a music video. Will Oldham is sort of like, the entertainment industry's Forrest Gump. He just kind of wanders in and just finds himself in the middle of things. Yeah. He's uh, also in the second, uh, chunk of trapped in the closet. R Kelly, uh, oh, okay, videos. Yeah, which I didn't see. Um, I'll only watch the first section, the first like okay. 12 or 13 because they weren't meant to be funny and they're hilarious. And I think after that, R Kelly was like, Oh, people are watching these mm. and laughing. And then he started trying to make them funny and then it stopped working. Bad call. Um, anyway, um, so yeah, uh, a ghost story is, uh, absolutely, uh, beautiful. Um, and it is my favorite movie of the year. I understand that some people, uh, will, um, be bored to tears. Um, but it's, uh, less than 90 minutes long. So that's always a good thing. All right. You know what? That <laughs> takes it to number four already just for me. <laughs> yeah. I, I um, give it, yeah. I give it to David Lowry. He, he, he knows, um, if you're going to make a movie where very little happens, well, that's a Peter said, but where there's almost no dialogue yeah. at least keep it short. Uh, he did a good job. Uh, that said, it David Lowry, great. I still think of the guy from cracker and, uh, and camper van Beethoven as the David Lowry. And you are still the other David Lowry. This is a John Favreau, John Favreau type of situation for me. Oh, right. Yes. Um, which is, it's so funny to me, like to you and I actor, writer, director, John Favreau was the John Favreau mm-hmm. and, um, political political aid speechwriter and now podcaster John Favreau is the other John Favreau. Yeah. But like I read Politico constantly all day long. Um, and when they, if there's like a fundraiser and they're like, what celebrities are there? And then refer to actor, writer, director, John Favreau as the other John Favreau, which is so strange. But I guess if that's what you're, if you're centered in Washington, yeah. that, you know, the, the younger John Favreau is the John Favreau. 
I guess so. Ah, oh, that bothers me somehow. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, my next two movies are, are rewatches. So uh, Jen and I were uh, bored one night, and we decided, like, you know what? Let's let's throw a movie on. Let's see what's on Netflix. And we, I guess, this speaks to the mood we're in these days. We decided to throw on Sweeney Todd. Uh, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street. That's the one. Um, no, this is just like the regular one. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, Demons down the street there, down Fleet Street. Um, <laughs> And I hadn't seen it for a while. You've seen it, right? Uh, no, I mean I've seen okay. stage version. But no, I've okay. never seen Tim Burton's movie with uh, Sasha Baron Cohen, starring Sasha Baron Cohen. Correct. As, yes, as Sweeney Todd. Right. Uh, close enough. Okay. Um, it's a movie that I really, I really like. I know that a lot of people who who have seen the original stage production, they don't really like it for a number of reasons. Johnny Depp and and uh, Helena Bonham Carter, especially, don't have really powerful singing voices. Um, and in many ways, you know, the, the, everybody has a white face and stuff like that. Just kind of standard Tim Burton stuff. I will say it, the film did win best art direction that year. Unsurprisingly, um, Tim Burton films have won four times, by the way, art direction. Um, okay. I took the time to look that up. I would So Sweeney Todd. Yeah. Okay. What are the other ones? Edward Scissorhands. Well, I don't actually oh, okay. remember them. I, well, okay. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Okay. Uh, no. Uh, I know them now. You know them now? Okay. Yeah. Um, Planet of the Apes? Nope. Uh, I'm trying to think what are like the uh, Alice in Wonderland? Yes. Um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? Nope. Um, Feel free to go early. Batman Returns? Nope. Batman? Yes. Oh, really? Batman? Yeah. Okay. There's one more. Uh, is it earlier or, or more recent? Right in the middle. Right in the middle? Big Fish? No. Nope. Do you consider that middle or is that later? I consider that middle. Okay. Um... What else? I said Planet of the Apes, and it wasn't that. Big Fish. What else is around that time? Am I missing a big one? Oh, uh, Sleepy Hollow. Yes. Yeah. Um, which is uh, one of my favorites of his, actually. I'm a big fan of Sleepy Hollow. I need to watch it again because I don't remember liking it. Yeah, a lot of people don't, but I, I have an appreciation for it. But, um, but with I'm, a, I'm, Todd, a, I'm a big fish defender, though. Yeah, I know you are. And uh, <laughs> But what am I? Not. Uh, so... Um, <clears throat> Yeah, Sweeney Todd, I'll say this. So, first off, uh, I do think that from an acting standpoint, I think Johnny Depp and Helena Bonham Carter are both doing really good work, and I'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, so, Timothy Spall plays Beetle Bamford. He is uh, the judge's like right hand man, and okay. who is a very corrupt uh, city official. And Timothy Spall decides to steer right into it and is so unabashedly corrupt uh-huh. uh, and just takes so much joy in being corrupt that I'm transfixed anytime he's on screen because he just decides he's going to play it 100%. So I like that a lot. Um, and there are, there are sequences uh, that are really quite striking and beautiful at a time when, you know, it's 2007. We we've seen what Tim Burton can do. And every once in a while, it's like, yeah, that that does look really good. Uh, good for him. Uh, enough that actually uh, it it inspired me to do a uh, at this year's Alpha Omega Con, the Christian uh, comic mm-hmm. convention. Uh, I will once again be putting together two panels. One is going to be called uh, "Screaming in Space: The Alien Legacy," and then the other will be called uh, "Weirdos and Misfits: The Films of Tim Burton." Oh. And so, uh, so I'm excited to to talk about that. But um, what I will say is. Afterwards, because I'm, I was only mildly familiar with the stage production, um, 
of Sweeney Todd. So I went on YouTube and watched uh, footage uh, from where you see Angela Lansbury playing uh, Mrs. Lovett, and then you also see Patty Lapone playing Mrs. Lovett, and then a guy named George Hearn playing uh, uh, Sweeney in both in both cases. And I gotta say, uh, I think it's worth. I think. I think I am definitely not a stage musical guy. I think I'm not opposed to movie musicals, but there's just something about like the idea of Angela Lansbury playing Mrs. Lovett was very exciting to me. And then I saw footage of it. And it's like she and both, uh, both she and Patty Lapone are really playing it big, which is fine. I'm fine with uh, Timothy Spall doing it, but for some reason, like they telegraph absolutely everything. But would you pick up on that if you were, you know, three quarters of the way back of the house? Like, I think that's, that's the idea. I think, I think so. Okay. Because, because, uh, these are filmed from far away. Okay. Um, and it's just one of those things that like, and maybe it's because I'm more familiar with the movie, but right. it really gave me, Helena Bonham, Bonham Carter's singing voice is a little bit hollow and higher, and it's hard to understand what she's saying a lot. It, those are difficult mm-hmm. songs to to sing for anybody. Um, but it, what she's doing with her face and her body language, I think, is great. Um, more so than than the other two, who are they're they're playing everything big and 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 that's what you're supposed to do in theater. And so I I understand it, but it's not, it really is not my cup of tea. It actually gave me tremendous respect for the restraint Hmm. of, uh, Helena Bonham Carter and Johnny Depp. And I would say it might be Johnny Depp's last really, really great performance. So if, if, if the listeners haven't seen it and, uh, and, uh, I feel like a lot of people have, but at the same time, like you haven't, and I know a handful of other people that haven't. So maybe it's not a film from 2007 um, that uh, that film people felt the need to see because I guess maybe it came at a certain point in Tim Burton's filmography that film fans are like, yeah, okay, we, we got it. We don't need to see it. But I would say uh, seek it out. There's enough good stuff in there to um, to hold your interest and... I'd say even if you're not a fan of musicals, I think it'll it'll take a minute to get going, obviously. But I think uh, once you get used to it, I think it's uh, a film that most people would enjoy. It's very bloody, by the way. Just a heads up. A lot of throats are slit. So keep that in mind as well. Isn't that kind of refreshing, though, to have a... Absolutely. Uh, R-rated Tim Burton? Like, yeah. After he had spent, at that point, you know, half a decade making... Uh, yeah. Chocolate Factories and Wonderlands. Maybe that's one of the things that I like about Sleepy Hollow. <laughs> yeah, it's rated R. Um, okay. All right, I kind of teased this before talking about Bong Joon-ho, but uh, I'm going to I'm going to put this a little bit facetiously, or okay. a little bit impishly, or glibly. Oh, nice. Um, I saw my least favorite Edgar Wright movie. Okay. Baby Driver. Oh, got it. Okay. Now, that's a... intentionally sort of tongue-in-cheek way of saying i really liked baby driver it's just not as good as any other movie that a great has made um but i can't wait to watch it again it's a it's a ton of fun i would recommend it to people certainly for a sort of summer i saw it you know it's been very hot in the valley recently so i saw it in the middle of the day you know and to go to a movie theater in the air conditioning in the middle of the day on a summer day like that's exactly the kind of movie baby driver is it's a fun time um, but it does feel, you know, Edgar Wright has always made fun, poppy, sugary movies, but that tend to have a core tend to have yeah. some depth. And I think this is the first one that really feels 
pretty much superficial the whole time. There's not really a whole lot going on. There's not a lot of self-examination. You know, I think that's, especially with the Cornetto trilogy, they're often like kind of, they're movies that are nostalgic and backward looking, but are also, um, kind of, uh, you know, interrogating themselves and their characters about being those kind of people about Hmm. not growing up. Do you know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, and, um, Scott Pilgrim, which I also watched, uh, recently, um, also has a ton of great stuff going on. I mean, I wish this is something we talked about. I think maybe in the last movie journal was some of the complaints about, um, the lack of black characters in the beguiled, you know? Yeah. And I do think that Edgar Wright's movies have consistently have had thinly drawn women in them. Hmm. Um, but you know, this is, you know, my, what I said about the beguiled is that, uh, I hope we get to a point where there are enough women making movies that Edgar Wright making an Edgar Wright movie isn't a big deal. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, but it is kind of, uh, a, a bummer, even, even in Scott Pilgrim, where I think Mary Elizabeth Winstead and Ellen Wong are both great. Um, uh, there's not much, uh, depth to their character. I think they're bringing something as actors, but, um, baby driver is even worse. I think, uh, and I like Lily James. She was Cinderella. She was fantastic right. as, as Cinderella, but she's just in, in, in the, in the parlance of these kind of movies, she's just the girl. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean, um, yeah, that's yeah. true. Um, and there's another woman, uh, Isa Gonzalez, not an actress I know, but she's, um, she's a two dimensional character cause she's kind of supposed to be, she's just one of the bank robbers, right. but she's fucking great. I love her. That's cool. Um, yeah, I, uh, I this, this is a, a common thing that I feel like I've been saying, um, and will be saying in a few days. Um, there is an element within me. Maybe I'm becoming more contrarian or maybe just more suspicious. Um, there's been such positivity around baby driver and so many people saying like, this movie's amazing. Like it just as, as if it's somehow rev- revelatory or something like that. And it's like, I'm sure it's tremendous fun and probably in a much more vital, exciting yeah. way. Uh, you know, you and I have praised Edgar Wright up and down as a guy who understands who understands filmmaking and how it can relate to comedy in a way like he understands it better than better than almost than almost than almost any. I don't mean to uh, suggest that I wouldn't like it. I'm sure I would, but there's just something about the tone that people are taking as though it's just, I don't know. Yeah. I, 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 um, I definitely get some of that, but I do want to sound, I don't want to just talk about the problems I have with it because it is, it's a blast and it's not just a blast because it's a big loud action movie. It's a blast because it's, um, I mean, I hesitate to go all in and say it's an original idea. It's not based on an existing property. Right. It's also very, you know, plot wise, it's very similar to many other crime movies you've seen, but not an execution. It does have a specific Edgar Wright feel to it because you know, the conceit is that, it has almost wall to wall music yeah. and everything is like set to the music. Like I watched an interview with Kevin Spacey and he was talking about not even in action scenes, just in regular scenes, the actors would have like earwigs in playing the song that's playing in that scene. So it's like when Kevin Spacey, who's like the guy who sends them on the, right. when he's counting out the money, he's counting, setting down the stacks of dollar bills to the beat of the song hmm. that Edgar Wright knows is going to be uh, cut to. That's it, kind of great. It's, it's awesome. And also there, you know, this is a movie that has, you know, a lot of glass and steel moving at very high speeds. 
Um, uh, okay, I'm not, Tyler, you know what that reference is, but I'm not going to, uh, the listener has to guess what that reference is. I think I might need to, um, I think I might need to guess as well. It's a movie that you know very yeah. well, but we, we have referenced many times anyway, but, uh, there is zero, zero green screen in, uh, in, in, uh, in baby driver, even, even, you know, the scenes, uh, uh inside the car when it's, mm-hmm. you know, dialogue scenes during an action sequence, um, did you just get what I, I was from? Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, everything is done practically and, and physically. So they're, you know, they're, it's not just that the, everything's moving at 60 to 80 miles per hour. It's the people who are also acting at 60 to 80 yeah. miles per hour and it's very exhilarating. And it does, I think that to, to come to the defense of the people who are overpraising right. it, I think that does for a you know for for a major release like this yeah. uh summer action movie to have something that everything in the frame is tangible and physical yeah. that does feel so refreshing that's the thing is i don't i i feel bad that i'm that i'm i don't mean to be negative and i haven't seen the movie it might be my favorite movie of the year you know i'm perfectly open to that i i i'm i'm i'll jump right on the bandwagon if the film allows me to yeah but that's the thing is Edgar Wright is a perpetually ambitious filmmaker who is going to challenge himself uh, with each film. And it sounds like he's definitely doing that here in a number of ways. Like that music thing, I didn't know that. And that's fascinating. uh, And that's got to be remarkably challenging for him and all of the performers. Yeah. Although one of the guys I saw with my friend Matt was, he felt it got a little old by the end when like shootouts are happening where literally like the bullets are coming to the, like, to to the you know to the notes of the of the music i loved it the, the entire time mm-hmm. um another thing i'll say before we move on um everyone's great in, in the movie uh jamie fox is an actor that for some reason it's like i have this weird amnesia where in between uh jamie fox movies i forget how much i like jamie fox um because it, he's he's uh one of the villains of the movie yeah and he's not at all going for subtle or complex villain. Yeah. He's just a fucking bad guy and he's just knocks it out of the park. He's so great. Doesn't, doesn't Jamie Foxx seem like the kind of actor that would do great in an Elmore Leonard movie? Sure. Yeah. Like that's, yeah, that the story of this kind of reminds me of that. It also reminds me of heist, the David Mamet uh, film. Um, yeah, but I guess that's the, uh, that's the idea. It's supposed to remind you of these types of movies. Yeah. Um, so you, uh, you didn't know about the music thing at I all? I did not. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I knew that there was a lot of music, but I didn't know that it was timed out that way. Yeah. That's what people have been, uh, sort of half jokingly, but half with some backing to it, calling it a, a kind of musical. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, and that every, yeah, every major set piece is set to a song yeah. and it, you know, it, it unfolds to the beat of that song as if everything, not just the characters, but the cars and the bullets and everything are choreographed. It's very cool. Yeah. That's neat. Yeah, I guess I uh, not. I guess I'll have to watch it. I really want to watch it, and uh, maybe tonight. Maybe I'll go see it. I was going to see. Uh, I was thinking of seeing Spider Man Homecoming, but maybe I'll see this first. Okay. So, uh, okay. So next for me, uh, and I remembered uh, that I actually uh, saw another film um, that I had forgotten to write down. So I apologize, uh, but unsurprisingly um it is edgar wright's hot fuzz which is my i don't know billionth time seeing it at this point um but i was in the mood for it um and 
I, I never get tired of it. I always find, I always laugh at the same jokes and then I laugh at new jokes uh, or I have an appreciation for new jokes. Um, I will always laugh at great big bushy beard. Um, and I will, and the thing that has really emerged over the, over the years with that film is uh, the Andes, the, the two detectives that have mustaches and are just unnecessarily hostile <laughs> yeah. towards him That's and everybody. Patty Considine and who's the other one? Uh, Rafe Spall, I believe. Oh, okay. And just, just the, just so they are w- one dimensional characters. And it's like, we hate everyone uh-huh. and we're together on that. Um, so I love that. And just, uh, what's the joke when Patty Considine gets like jam on him? There's a shootout in a grocery store and like, a, it's like a, a jar of like jelly or jam breaks. Oh yeah. And so it looks like there's blood on yeah. it. Or and he's like just screaming and yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> but then there's stuff like the one woman speaking of, of the way, uh, Edgar Wright, uh, writes women. Um, the, the one woman at the precinct, like constantly makes like sex jokes uh-huh. about her and all that. Uh-huh. And when she does, everybody laughs in such a shit eating way. There's like, (laughs) and, but it's like communal and eventually, uh, eventually, uh, Simon Pegg's character starts to do it as well. And then everybody's, and they throw trash cans at each other's heads. And it's just such a, I gotta watch that one again, man. It's 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 probably been the longest of any Ed Wright movie since I've seen that one. Yeah, I I really yeah. and I do and uh, and I think this time around I really appreciated uh, Timothy Dalton, who shows up. Basically, everything about him just announces that he is the villain. Like the moment he shows up, he goes, he goes, "You better lock me up. I'm a, I'm a slasher. I'm slashing prices." <laughs> and just and every moment he's always there making murder jokes, and you feel yeah. like, oh, okay, this is setting him up to probably not be the villain. It's like, Oh no, he is. That's something that Simon or that, uh, Edgar Wright is so good at is giving you foreshadowing. That's so obvious, <laughs> but kind of tossing it all, tossing it away yeah. that you don't realize until it pays off. Like, Oh, like in Shaun of the dead, um, after Peter Serafin weeks, he like yells at them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Nick Frost says, uh, next time I see him, he's dead. And then literally the next yeah. time he sees him, he's dead. Yeah. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff like that in his movies that I like. Yeah. It's just, there really is, you know, uh, so let me, I'll put it this way and then let me know if I'm being too over the top or whatever, but there is a joy to the way he makes movies and yeah. there's a joy when I watch movies. Like it is, uh, he's just, he's a guy who refuses to be lazy. Like he will make movies. Uh, he goes all the way to 11 when he, when yeah. he directs movies. What is your favorite of his? <laughs> I haven't seen Shaun of the dead in a while. Um, probably either hot fuzz or Scott Pilgrim. It's um, definitely but I, Scott Pilgrim for me, but I think there, there does come, um, uh, come a moment towards the end of spot Scott Pilgrim where I start to feel a little bit fatigued. Um, but that doesn't happen with hot fuzz. Um, that I, said, some of the some of the moment I do think maybe with uh, maybe it balances out because there are moments in S- Scott Pilgrim that have such delightful originality that that might make up for it. Yeah, um, Scott Pilgrim also though it's such a human cartoon that like it's almost it's superhuman what Edgar Wright is able to get his actors to do physically. Yeah, not just to do, but like it's almost as if they're like clay models that he posed himself because yeah. they're like when Scott like 
gets punched by Matthew Patel and like sort of slow motion flies backwards to the air. Like everything about where his foot or where his hand, everything is so perfectly composed yeah. that it, it seems like Edgar Wright has some sort of, I don't know. He's like a warlock. <laughs> he's almost in many ways. He's almost the good version this is going to sound mean. He's like the good version of Zack Snyder. Like, I feel like they, <laughs> they attempt similar things and they both are trying to, they both think in terms of iconic images within a certain scene. Like, okay, th- it's why they both implement slow motion at certain times, which is like, we really want people to walk away with this image from this scene. And they, I think they yeah. think in terms of like, like a comic book artist. Uh, but I feel like Edgar Wright, earns it more. He, he motivates his images where yeah. Zack Snyder just wants to cut to it. Yeah, um, I think so. Yeah. All right. Um, you talked about, uh, hot fuzz. Okay. So uh, it's my last movie and then you have one yeah. and then we'll do some TV. Um, I watched the movie. I'll be, I'll be writing a review. It's an, even though it's an old movie, it's a 1963 movie. Um, that's recently been re- restored. It's already opened in New York. It's coming to Los Angeles. Uh, it's Vittorio De Sica's 1963 comedy, uh, Il Boom or the boom. um, and Tyler, I got to tell you, I love this movie okay. so much. Um, you don't think of DeSica as a comedy director. I, that's part of what I, I was, uh, uh, but it, I mean, I was blown away because uh, it is a very funny movie and it also moves like a comedy. Yeah. Um, and again, I always mention when this happens, it's under 90 minutes. Always a good, <laughs> always a positive thing. Is this an um, issue of you and I getting older? I think I've always liked short movies. I've always appreciated it, but at the same time, there's an element of like, if I enjoy a movie, part of me is like, oh, I just want this to go on. But now it's like, get in, get out. That's yeah. fine. We've all got places to be. Yeah, and it's especially for a comedy. You know, it's yeah, absolutely. You, you, know, the, you know, that's the problem we've always had. A lot of people have had with Judd Apatow movies. Although the big sick at two hours works. Um, you know, the, there's always. Uh, but I feel like the nature of that, because it's a dramatic, it's right. a dramatic premise. So I think right. it allows for that. Um, so anyway, this movie is called the boom or il boom. Um, and it's about a guy who is, uh, part of the, sorry, the, he's a businessman. He has a wife. He's living a very high, uh, society type of life. Um, hobnobbing with people who are his bosses and who make more money than he does. And he's got this, you know, great, uh, sort of, um, penthouse apartment and a nice mm-hmm. car and goes out, you know, takes his wife, uh, all over the place and out to dinners and, uh, and stuff like, uh, but we very soon learn that he is living way beyond his means, uh, and is in suffocating debt. Okay. Um, and, uh, he asks his friends uh, for money. Eventually his wife finds out things sort of start to, uh, fall apart. And then uh, I, and I'm not actually going to spoil what it is, but the boss, the, the wife of the boss of his boss boss makes him an offer that will get him out of debt. And then some, um, it's not what you think it is. Okay. Um, uh, would you say this proposal is indecent, Dave? Uh, I will. I wouldn't say that, because um, it uh, um, gives the wrong impression. Okay. But it is illegal. Okay. And it is uh, a very dear cost uh, that she's asking from him. Okay. Um, and, and yet, still a comedy. And I think this is where, um, and probably beforehand, but especially at this point, um, when the movie reveals itself to be not just a comedy, but a satire of, you know, of people trying to keep up with the Joneses and then something right. in, in a sort of, um, 
uh, I, I don't know enough of the history of Italy, but in 19, right. or early 1960s, um, you know, the same t- general time as like La Dolce Vita, you know, right. and, uh, uh, a very uh, uh, shiny party type of yeah. uh, type of type of life, um, and trying to keep up with that and uh, conspicuous how, consumption, David. Um, yes, uh, and so it is like it's exhausting to see this guy tell lies back and forth and ask for money and um, trying to hide it from his his wife and um, it's exhausting, but in a in a darkly funny way, and it's sort of um, I feel like. It's in a way. It's you could see it as kind of a, a companion piece to Bicycle Thieves because this is also a guy who is struggling every moment and is hustling and is desperate to scrape by. Except the joke here is that he's living at the top of the city, right. um, and the movie, in while still feeling very s- sympathetic towards him also invites you to laugh at him mm-hmm. uh, at the same time. It's a, it's a really sharp uh, and smartly made, um, uh, you know, social comedy. All right. Uh, I, I liked it a lot. Uh, Il Boom is how Rialto is. If you look it up on IMDb, it just says The Boom, a.k.a. Right. Il Boom. But the Rialto Pictures official name for this uh, theatrical release is Il Boom. Okay. So... Uh Lastly, for me, uh, on the 4th of July, Jen and I went to see Jaws at a uh, theater near us. Um, obviously, I've seen it many times before, uh-huh. but it is... Uh, and you've seen it on the big screen before as well. Yeah, I yeah. saw it many years ago at an arc light, and then I saw it in an outdoor screening, but I, I was far enough away that yeah. it just didn't really register. But this time around, it was nice big screen, good sound system, uh, and, you know... I, at this point, I think I probably know the whole script. I think I could probably tell you every line. Um, but there's just something about seeing something on the big screen that you do notice the smaller things that aren't necessarily story based. Uh, and what I noticed this time, not that I, I was already well aware of how much I love Robert Shaw in the film, but what occurred to me this time is how physical his performance is. Hmm. Um, this is a guy who, you know, there's a there's a working class quality to, to him. Um, he makes that very clear. Uh, and so he works with his hands. He he very casually grabs his rifle. He very casually ties things off. He's he scrambles from one side of the boat to the other. Um, and he's he is at ease on that boat. And you can just tell the way he carries himself physically mm-hmm. like this. I 100% believe that this is a guy who spends the vast majority of time on this boat. Um, and along those lines, I will also say that Quint says a lot of nautical terms hmm. and a lot of boating terms. And I don't know what a lot of them mean, but I do believe that he knows what they mean. I know it sounds strange because, of course, an actor's job is to sell things. But, yeah. you know, I... In high school and in college, you see enough actors who it's clear they are not comfortable wearing a suit. Yeah, uh, and and there are times when you you'll see often younger actors, even in film, who they're meant to be an expert in something, and they'll say this you know gobbledygook, and they'll treat it as gobbledygook, and you can tell like they don't have an association I, with this thing. I have a perfect example because okay. for some reason I was just thinking about it. Okay, in the somewhat recent movie in um, Kingsman. Okay. There's a, when, when Taron Egerton or Egerton shows up to the big party at the end when he's kind of undercover Mm -hmm. and he orders a martini in a very sort of like 
cheeky James Bond type way yeah. that he uses sort of like metaphor and exaggeration to order the martini. Mm-hmm. And I'm, when I'm watching them, like, I don't think Taron Edison realizes like, I don't think he understands exactly what he's ordering at this oh, point. Oh, yeah, probably I think he's not. just reading the, the script. And I think another example that you've given is, uh, what is it, Bend It Like Beckham, where uh, Jonathan Reese Myers is like a soccer player, <laughs> and he is, the actor is clearly not a soccer player. <laughs> right, yeah. And along those lines, like, one of the things that, Quint, as a real character, doesn't show up until Act 3, essentially. We see him, you know... Mm-hmm head tail whole damn thing chalkboard moment which is about two minutes long if that we see him briefly witness the craziness of all the people coming into town to try and get the shark we see him witness that so he is a stat he's introduced he's reasserted but then as a character he the film goes on for a long time before he really shows up uh so he has a lot of work to do uh to make this character every bit as important as the other two characters. And I think he's written very well, but I think Robert Shaw just by inhabiting this guy and making making him seem fully, fully fleshed out, like the way he carries himself, the way he talks about things. It is like, I already love the performance, but I didn't really appreciate the intricacies of what it would take to play that character. And I, it's it, to me, it's not unlike, uh, we'll be talking about Silicon Valley in a moment. When you take the time to realize the amount of technical jargon these characters <laughs> use, and they use it with 100% confidence, um, that's a, that is a skill. Like you think of, think of things you know about. And if I, in your job, if you were, right, if right. I had to say those terms, I might have an idea of what they mean. Uh, but I wouldn't have, but I wouldn't be able to sell that with the, the way you do, because this is part of your everyday life. Mm-hmm. And so for a character to feel lived in, especially when they're an expert in something very specific, uh, it takes a, a seasoned actor who is willing to be completely, uh, unselfconscious. Um, and, of course, Jaws is great in a number of other things, but this is what I noticed about it this time. All right. Um, let's get into TV. Um, I watched, uh, uh, like, a, like the true modern-day animal uh, that I am, I uh, watched an entire um, show over the 4th of July break. Nice. Um, the entire, entire season. Uh, I watched the new Netflix show, Glow. Oh, okay. The entire first season. Tyler, it's terrific. Is it? Okay. It is so great. That I one snuck it. up on me. Like, I felt like sometimes they hype these shows up for a while before they show up. This one, I heard about it, and then it was there, like, the next day. Yeah, I've definitely had that uh, happen with a, f- a few of these, um, because Netflix is just making so many shows now. Yeah. Um, and some of them, you know, don't, like, uh, you know anything about Gypsy? Nope. Yeah, do you know, Did you didn't know that Naomi Watts is the star of a Netflix series? No, no, I yeah. did not. I no, did no not. one's talking about it. Uh, <laughs> partially because it's not getting very good reviews. From what mm. I understand. Um, it's too bad. And now I'm saying that it might be Amazon, but it, whatever. It's the same. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, but glow for those who don't know, glow stands for gorgeous ladies of wrestling, which was a real show that ran, uh, for three or four years in the mid to late eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a, you know, a wrestling show that was, uh, all women. Um, and this is a movie that is inspired by that, uh, movie. This is a show that is inspired by that that show, but is uh, uh, you know it's a making of a show called Glow, but it's not 
a one-to-one. Like the characters, the actors aren't playing real people. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Okay. I don't know why it seems so complex to me now to say <laughs> <laughs> it's inspired by, but not real. Okay. Right. Um, Alison Brie is the star of the, of Netflix's glow, though not the star of glow within the show. Um, right. Okay. Yes. Uh, and she's a sort of, um, desperate quote unquote serious actor who's uh, living in Los Angeles and having trouble getting jobs. And she gets booked, um, to be one of these ladies. And the, 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 this is just the first season that, you know, it's clearly a show that's meant to have more than one season because the, the final episode is the filming of the pilot of the show. So mm-hmm. it's just all about the build up um, to the show, but it's, I mean, to, to bounce off of what we were just saying about, uh, you know, Edgar Wright, if you want to see, you know, deep and well-drawn women, like yeah. glow is a show that is, you know, uh, you know, 14 of the 16 main characters are women and they're all distinct and they're all, uh, uh fantastic. And they're, here's another thing that I love. And maybe this is just because you have more room in TV. Um, but I think it's because it's also a better written, uh, thing. Um, you and I both um, were not uh, knocked out by the recent Ghostbusters uh, reboot movie. True. Um, and one of my complaints was that you've got you've got these four very funny women at the center who are saddled with so much bullshit yeah. that it ends up falling to the ancillary car- characters like Chris Hemsworth and Cecily Strong and Andy Garcia to actually generate most of the laughs. Yeah. Glow does not have that problem. These women are not only are, uh, is it, are, are they, um, well drawn. They're also very funny and very funny in ways that are true to character. Um, uh, yeah. Alison Brie is the main, the, the, the main, uh, the main woman, the only other one, there were two others that I, uh, off the top of my head, two other actors that I recognized. Um, one of them, speaking of Scott Pilgrim, is Ellen Wong, who played Knives oh, Channel nice. in Scott Pilgrim. And the other one, I'm forgetting her name, but she was on uh, Mr. Robot. She's an Indian, mm-hmm. uh, Indian American, not American Indian, Indian American uh, actress. Um, uh, and then the other main name on the show, the 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 only ma- major male character and well then there's a second one that comes later uh is mark Marin. he plays the oh. director and i've heard he's quite good in he it. he is honestly i not that i generally care about this sort of thing but i hope he gets an emmy nomination hmm. he's so fantastic and i think part of it is that like other than almost because i never watched uh Marin. i watched an episode of it so other than almost famous i don't really think of him as an actor yeah um and uh Part of it is I wonder, I'm not sure how flattering this is, but having listened to a lot of his podcast, I'm wondering if Sam as a character isn't maybe a little bit close to, to Mark, uh, yeah. Mark Marin in that he's, um, of, you know, a politically liberal idealist mm-hmm. who has never compromised and therefore has never really succeeded as much as he wanted to and has a lot of bitterness, uh, uh, about that fact. Um, That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> it seems very similar. Yeah. Uh, right. Um, but he's also, uh, unlike, you know, Mark Maron, obviously I know from his podcast had his troubles with drugs, but is sober. Now Sam is very much, very much not sober and mm-hmm. is also, uh, quite a misogynist a lot of times, even though he's like well-meaning. And I think the show to the show's credit and to the writer's credit, uh, the show's, created by uh, Liz Flaheve and Carly Mensch, I think are their names. Um, and then it's, 
um, executive produced, not created by it, but executive produced by Genji Cohen, who made uh, oh, Weeds right. and Orange is the New Black. Um, uh, and to their credit, like as much as Sam can be an asshole, uh, as, and as much as all of the characters who are stand, who who could be villains can be assholes, the show humanizes every one of them and that goes for you know there are a couple of women in, on the show who uh are uh, antagonistic to Alison Brie or antagonistic to one another um but the the show is not content to have any any villains really it has characters and some of them want different things uh and it's incredibly uh deep and sharp and complex but it's also super funny and it's only 10 half hour episodes uh, mm. or half hour in Netflix world, which means some of them stretched like 37, 38 minutes, but still too long, uh, <laughs> too long for uh, a comedy. Um, uh, I tore through what? 37 minutes. Yeah. I mean, do you, well, admittedly the Netflix arrested development wasn't that great, but like some of those were, oh, I disagree. Were I'm, I'm on the side of those. We're the few of us who defend arrested development season four. Um, there's good, there's good stuff in it and all that. But, uh, what I will say is like, there are episodes that are about 37 minutes. And I think going at the pace that it goes, I remember being like, right, man, this is exhausting. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess keep in mind that glow is, while it is very funny, it's, uh, it's often more of a dramedy. Yeah. I'm sure. Um, but then sometimes we'll have just really funny stuff in it. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think of other names that are in it. Um, Rich Summer is a recurring character nice. uh, in it. And um, speaking of weeds, um, who's Nancy's neighbor, Elizabeth Perkins? Is that oh, her yeah, name? yeah. She's, she has one episode, but she's a, a big part of that episode uh, and is terrific. Um, and, and also, I think it does the 80s thing right. Okay. Um, uh, it it try I think that generally avoids like making too many references. The second yeah. to last episode has a lot of references references to Back to the Future, but it's actually surprisingly germane to the to to the show. Yeah. Um, why they would be talking so much about Back to the Future? Well, and the film was something of a phenomenon at the time, so it stands to reason that people would be talking about it that much. Yeah, I won't say for that. I want to tell you the okay. context of how back to the future comes up because it's, it sneaks up on you and it's so funny. Okay. But, um, anyway, so that's glow. I, I can't, uh, I couldn't recommend it more. Uh, I'm so glad I watched. I'm a big fan of Alison Brie. And here's a fun fact. One of my favorite words is glow. Oh, well, not sure why you'll hear plenty of it. In yeah. This one. Maybe too much. Maybe it'll burn me out. <laughs> there you go. Um, okay. So speaking of Netflix, uh, I have been, I've returned to Mystery Science Theater 3000 okay. and watched uh, a few episodes of that. And uh, I will stick with my contention that the, the pacing is just a bit off in uh, the way they deliver jokes. It's okay. like they're trying to, it's like this is to cl- the new, the new, the, yeah, yeah, yeah the Netflix one. Um, and so it's almost like there are moments where there's a funny image on the screen. They wrote three jokes, but didn't want to pick one. Uh-huh. So they try to say all three and it's like, that's fine. But you, you, there is such thing as even in a fast pace joke machine, like MST three K, there is such a thing as letting a punchline land. And some of them are actually quite some within the three jokes. One of them is like, that's a good, that's great. The other two are fine, but that one is great. You should have gone with that one. But as it is, I don't even have time to chuckle at it. And, so that's unfortunate, but at the same time, the jokes are still pretty well done and, and pretty well, uh, uh, delivered. And so, 
you know, it's, it's still enjoyable and, uh, and I'm glad that I, that I watched it. So, uh, and then I also, I'm not sure if this would count as a TV show, but, uh, uh, I've been watching episodes of, uh, comedians and cars getting coffee, catching up on, on those. Um, cause yeah, he cranks those out and those are a good example of in, in true Seinfeld fashion, leaving people wanting more, but in, a, in the best possible yeah. way, like those top out at like 20 minutes and you feel like, uh, an episode with Norm Macdonald and Jerry Seinfeld, I could watch a movie of that. Uh-huh. Um, and so I really enjoy that. And, and it is, it's interesting to hear them briefly touch on certain comedy things like concepts of political correctness and all that. And just seeing what these right. comedians, many of whom are older, uh, seeing what they think about it. And, uh, and it's, and it's very interesting. Um, I, I forget, I think last time I asked you, 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 you didn't watch the Barack Obama one. Right? No, I didn't. Um, it's not, it's, it's not a particularly funny one. Um, what are the odds? <laughs> because he's not a comedian. That's, yeah. um, but, uh, can I tell you that there's a very funny part? Sure. Of course, it, of course it comes from Jerry. Uh, and the president Obama says, um, Oh, did I tell you I played golf with Larry David and Jerry and Jerry Seinfeld goes, no, but then you and I don't talk that much. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's nice. Yeah. (laughs) The, uh, the one that I thought was pretty funny, the one with Norm Macdonald is, uh, they were talking about Cosby Uh and, uh, Norm asked, you know, do you think that this is going to tarnish his legacy? And Jerry said, yes, absolutely. And, uh, and then Norm mentioned something that Patton Oswalt had said, which is, he's like, you know, Patton Oswalt said that like the worst thing was the hypocrisy. He goes, that's not the way I see it. I think the worst thing is the raping. <laughs> he's like, he goes, because I would say by and large, most rapists are also hypocrites. He's like, there's just, he goes, you don't find a lot of rapists being like, you know what? By God, I love rape. And I know it's not politically correct, but I love it. <laughs> he goes, and then he says, he's like, well, he's. I don't like all that rape talk, but at least not a hypocrite. And that's the most important thing. <laughs> so it's just, and delivered in that wonderful, uh, Norm yeah. Macdonald cadence. And so oh, that's great. So I've enjoyed them. I and then watch those. I just watched, uh, for the first time I watched the one with, uh, Cedric, the entertainer and that's delightful oh, as well. Uh, yeah. And so it's, and when you just, you, you know, cause he, he has people on that he, that Jerry clearly respects or he has known for a long time and also respects. And, um, it's just, man, it makes it, it makes such a difference. Just people that have a history and they have a shorthand and yeah, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, okay. And then we end with Silicon Valley. Yes. I, there was something I wanted to run by you. Okay. Uh, I don't have a lot of thoughts about the finale except that I liked it. Yeah. I liked it as well. Um, what I wanted to ask was, so I don't know how much you've read about TJ Miller's departure. Uh, I've kind of, I know he gave an interview with Hollywood reporter or variety. Um, uh, yeah, I think so. One yeah, of those. I haven't read it. Okay. Well, he gives a reason. He gives one of the, his reasons for the departure is, is, uh, conflicting with, uh, Alec Berg, Alec Berg, yeah. uh, as Jerry Seinfeld would say. Um, it's got a great John, John Hausman name. Yeah. Uh, and so, Mr. Berg. <laughs> and Alec Berg does not understand it all, <laughs> but, um, and he said that he didn't like the way Berg structures a show, which is that there's such a, there's a, they reset so often that, uh, that, you know, they'll, um, sometimes from one episode to the next, sometimes one season to the next. And that, uh, that, uh, 
Miller did not think that that was a, an effective, that's not as effective as, as just going purely serialized. Right. And what struck me about that was this idea that a, the show is still absolutely serialized. Like if you want to, if you want to proof, just look at Richard this season. I mean, he's doing some really, really rough stuff in this yeah. last episode. Like just the amount of lies he's willing to tell, the feelings he's willing to hurt, the way he's willing to exploit uh, a poor innocent like Big Head. Um, that speaks to a great deal of of arc within that character, and he is the lead, um, mm-hmm. so he is the one that should change uh, the most. But the other thing that got me is, you know, ever since talking to you about, uh, or that thing that you've asserted that I think I have come to agree with, is the idea that TV, uh, it's become so associated with serialization that people somehow think that to go to have it just be purely episodic, um, that that is somehow less than. Right, yeah. And, um, but that even within even within a serialized show, there should be an element to yes. But this episode can in a, in its own way stand on its own, mm-hmm. and at the same time, it's not a movie. While it can be interesting to see a serialized show and see where a character ends as opposed to where they started, like it's it's about what's happening right now, yeah. and right now on Silicon Valley, whenever that might be, it could be season one, two, three, or four. It doesn't matter right now in this episode, you're churning out some really great comedy and some mm-hmm. really interesting character development and, cr- and creating a larger world. Um, and so, you know, it's who, I mean, I'm sure TJ Miller actually does believe all that, but I think it's indicative of a larger belief, which is that like somehow episodic TV is, should be even comedy should be taken less seriously than, serialized television. And it's, so it struck me as, as interesting that he would say that, um, that even people within the industry are mm-hmm. accepting that now and using it maybe as a reason for, uh, for contention yeah. with other yeah. people. Or maybe he had other reasons or maybe he just <laughs> wants a lot of money and needed something. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, he's going to be fine though. TJ Miller. I think he's going to be all right. Um, okay. One last thing about Silicon Valley. Uh, I want to know what you made of this. Cause there was something that happened. And after the show was over, I said to Natalie, I was like, what do you think that meant? And then she was like, pretty much said like, you're overthinking it. It's obvious, obvious what that, what that meant. Um, every time Gavin has met with either Richard or, uh, uh, Kamel's character, Dinesh. Yeah. Uh, at the Mexican restaurant, mm-hmm. Richard, uh, Gavin has brought his own prepackaged fruit. This time he actually ordered Mexican food and ate it and had like a margarita and multiple plates. Hmm. Um, did, did that, did that stand out to you? Well, I have not noticed the fruit thing at all. So oh, every it did time not stand out a to little me. package of like, like high end grocery store, like fruit that like he's been eating instead of, uh, well, I would say food. you're not overthinking it. <laughs> um, I do think that like what it denotes, cause I think there is a change in Gavin. Yeah. Um, but I'm gonna, that, when I tell you another, they said, you can be like, Oh yeah, that was probably it. Okay. And that I feel like his character is more open rather than be so self-obsessed. Uh-huh. He's more open to other people, even in, even in that seemingly, uh, 
contentious discussion right. that he has with, with Richard, there's almost a friendly combative quality to it. Yeah. Um, and so I feel like it could be seen as he's being more open to his environment. Um, and then now they pointed out earlier in the episode when TJ Miller had the line about, was that seriously all we get for breakfast? And she said he was probably just really hungry <laughs> from being in Tibet. They obviously weren't feeding him that much. I think he was just really hungry. I guess there could be that as well. Yes. Yeah, I think that's probably it. But, uh, I like our, you and I have the same tendency to overthink. Uh, so I like <laughs> that way of approaching. I think too. it bears out. I think it's the type of show that, uh, that bears out overthinking. Uh, so, uh, uh, agree to disagree.